Jeff Thompson is rather like a modern-day Abel Tasman or Captain Cook. He sails freely into unknown seas, making important discoveries en route. He has, almost single-handedly, taken corrugated iron off the roof and turned it into iconic, mesmerising sculptures. Jeff has become without doubt the corrugated iron man of Australasia. In this episode, we talk with Jeff about his practice, his sculptures and long-term relationship with Brick Bay, which has featured many of his works on their sculpture trail over the years. Jeff, thank you for inviting me along today. But before we talk about your practice, perhaps you can shine some light on how your journey to becoming a sculptor all began. Right. Well, I, you know, even at primary school, I was always interested in art and I was good at it. I was good at, you know, drawing and painting and I was terrible at English. And it turned out I, you know, was dyslexic. My mother, who was a teacher, diagnosed me as being dyslexic way back. So, and I was encouraged you know, the artistic side, so I always enjoyed doing art. Um, I, you know, eventually I went through Elam and the painting and printmaking departments in the late, or 77 through to 81, and so I was painting most of the time. And then slowly, I, in, in 1980, I took a year away and I went down visiting friends in the South Island in, in Dunedin, end up living there and doing a lot of wandering the streets and walking long distances like Dunedin up to Christchurch and you know, I had a lot of time on my hands so I started seeing lots of roadside paraphernalia and that's where this idea dawned on me to look at advertising um, which could be screen printed as well so I started doing walks where I would I would actually become like a postie and put a letter ev- into every single letterbox I went past for three to five hundred kilometres I used to keep maps and diaries and I'd do drawings of every letterbox I went past and so if it had a map and I'd mark it on a map so if someone wrote to me wanted me to make something for their property or for their I was, I, the idea was I made little advertisements which said something about the property itself um, or a hobby of what the people did I wanted to make it quite a gentle um, you know folks, folksy type of object that I made and so I started making little cut out animals and things for people's letterboxes, um, motorbikes, sheep, dogs, foot for a chiropodist, strawberry for a strawberry grower, and I'd put them onto fence posts or onto their letterboxes. So people would, you know, they'd be, and people would see them as they're driving by. And that's when I started working more into three dimensions from there. I was still very much painting because I was, and, and using colour, but I was starting to work more in three dimensions. And what happened was, on one of those walks, I did a small corrugated iron cow for the first time with a pair of tin snips on the property, and I cut it out, shoved it onto the letterbox, and someone who saw that um, found out who made it, wrote to me, and commissioned me to make them some wildlife animals for their property in Wellington um, out of corrugated iron. So I made a, I'd been doing a lot of origami, so I tried to make these a tiger, an elephant, and a, and a penguin like folded paper. And that was my first, you know, venture into working with metal. So corrugated iron is, I suppose, embedded into the vernacular architecture and landscape of New Zealand. Um, In fact, I can't think of a single uh, other man-made material that is more of a Kiwi icon. But what is it like as a raw material to use to make sculptures? Yeah, well, I I find it very, it's very 
It's a great building material as it's used for, for you know, construction for fences, for houses, used flat, used curved for bullnose verandas and water tanks. Um, but I, I, it's malleable, it's cheap, it's everywhere, it's pliant. You know, what better material could you actually look for for a sculptural, you know, in that traditional sense? Construction, you can, you can, um, you can add to it, you know, you can weld onto it, you can rivet shapes onto it. You can subtract, so you can get an angle grinder or a plasma cutter and cut chunks away and re-change it. So it's very, um, you can manipulate it into, into how you want to use it. So it's a great, it's a great, I find it a great building material. Many thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people have come across your work, um, sometimes unwittingly. For example, for many years, visitors to Tapapa would have seen your classic Holden station wagon there. Uh, and even people travelling around the country would have seen your works, such as the gumboot at Tai Happy or uh, the giraffes at Gib- Gibbs Farm, for example. That. There almost seems no end to to the ways in which you can reimagine forms into sculpture using this material. The you know over the years I've I've used the material in a wide variety of ways. A, a to keep myself interested, you know, because it's it's um you know it's no different really to being a potter or a painter because they're using canvas and paint and I'm you know or, or clay and and firing it in a kiln. I'm using a material and doing things to it, exploring it. Uh, you know. The idea of covering a vehicle like a builder covers a roof you, or a building, you clad a building. The, that's how I got the idea of, of covering a car because, because um, you know, this casual, it was a casual idea of actually covering an object, an existing object, instead of building it from scratch. And the car was the first thing that came to hand and I, I wanted a car with curves and no one would lend me their Volkswagen or Mori Thau. So I ended up covering my station wagon, which I already had, and spent three weeks slowly, every panel was actually curved, even the doors have gentle curves, so I slowly covered that car lovingly, um, blocking in all the edges so there was no sharp edges, uh, we didn't want, making sure it was secure so it didn't blow off or flap off, and um, the, the choice of material there was rust, so I tried to, the aesthetic, I just wanted to keep that same texture pattern over the entire vehicle. I've since, and I used to drive that car on the road for three, four years, went to Australia for a year, was used over there. Eventually I got tired of being pulled over or people always looking at me, and I was regularly being pulled over by gangs, Hells Angels, Black Power, Mongrel Mob, they'd force me off the road, um, you know, they'd surround me and force, all oh, totally friendly, but they just wanted to have a look at the vehicle, as you know. The police were always pulling me over. So eventually I just became to the point where I was, when, when it came back from Australia and we used it in a television documentary, and when Te Papa heard that it was back in the country, they, they inquired about it, and so that's how it ended up in Te Papa. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where it became one of their most touched and popular items in the in the museum, which was interesting. Over 13 years, it was on exhibition until it's been taken off. Um, it's quite amazing how many people have seen that. Yeah. The other ways of building. I'm just trying to think of other other. You know, they, I go back to, of course, there's the giant gumboot in Thai Happy. Now, a lot of these things are not my ideas. Like the gum, you know, a lot of the animals and commissions I do are other people's ideas. They ask me, can you make a gumboot? You know, I'm happy because it was known as the gumboot capital, so that's why I made the gumboot. Um, 
the animals and things up at the Gibbs farm, the giraffe, the horses, all the cows and things you see dotted around the countryside. I've made them because people have paid me to make them and that's my job, you know, it's a fine line. I, my job is making sculptures and, and uh, who knows, you know, there's a, it's a very fine line between, you know, is it fine art or good sculpture or is it populist? You know, it's a, it's a, a line which is always moving. But I do try to do things with the material um, that take it to another level, take it to a, a, a way that um, we've not seen before. Or, or changes it so it's no longer functional. So you have some new works being installed at Brick Bay at the moment. Um, but before we talk about those, you, you have a long history and relationship with uh, the sculpture trail there at Brick Bay. Uh, so how did all of that begin? In the early 2000s, um, oh, I think it was about 2005, 2007, when Brick Bay um, happened or was, was being um, born by Richard and Christine and Anna, I was invited, they had, I think, weekly Sunday lunches with a group of sculptors to get, and we would, you know, I went up with several other sculptors and we were, you know, we spent an hour bushwhacking through the bush and there was ribbons around trees where Richard and Anna had gone and thought, well, the walkway's gonna come here. And so we followed this, this sort of line of ribbons through the bush as they described with great passion, you know, where the walkway was gonna be and there would be sculptors here and there, it was fabulous. And then we had a big lunch and to discuss it. And I always was impressed with Richard in particular because he was talking away and then all of a sudden he said, um, um, come on guys, help me, help me. Um, and he was wanting a lot more input and I was always impressed with that, uh, that, the way he did that. So that was my first introduction to Brick Bay, going and having lunch up there and going through a walk through the bush. And then when they opened, I did a whole series of floating bits of corrugated iron called, I think it was called lilies which were floating on the, one of the lakes, moving beautifully in the wind. It was like a ballet, and they were pirouetting and, and spinning and, da- and diving into the water and the wind, and they are all moving independently on swivels and chains and weights down the bottom. They had ballast. So that was the very first thing I did for Brick Bay, and over, over time I think I did three different versions of those floating sculptures, which all eventually sold, either to Australia or locally. Um, and then over the time, when, the, when I did sell the last lot off the lake, um, the punt at Brick Bay was made unavailable to me because on a previous time I'd put my knee through it, so I wasn't allowed to use the punt. So I had to take my own dinghy, and I had a corrugated iron dinghy which I took up. So I took the sculptures off the water and rode out, pulled them up, took them ashore. Then Jonathan Organ, who was the then curator, he said to me, hey, Jeff, he said, um, you know, we... Now, we don't have any of your sculptures here, so um, could we have the dinghy? I didn't want to sell the dinghy, so I loaned it, and and it was only going to be for a year, and it was there for several years, and I'd always ask Jonathan, can I get my dinghy back? And he said, oh, no, not yet, you know. Um, So it stayed up there for a long time, and eventually um, I got to know the curator at the Maritime Museum, and I ended up gifting it to the museum, uh, the National Maritime Museum on the Auckland waterfront, so that's where that lives now. And then following the dinghy, of course, um, uh, I was doing other ideas and I've done a series of mahoe leaves which you big big leaves with, which have been cut out like lace another way of destroying the material so I they were screen printed and corrugated to give them strength and curved and a little bit twisted and so I did a series of those which and then the last few years I've played around a lot with meshes and I get a lot of meshes from the rubbish tips and recycling and because it's often metal or aluminium 
I can mold it in one of my roller machines for corrugating materials. So I've built little models and with mesh and then I've enlarged them. Now there's a, a sculpture at Brick Bay of the mesh, the mesh house is in fact um, that evolved through playing with little tiny, tiny bits of mesh. You mentioned the Mahoe leaves just, um, so let's just revisit that a moment. I remember the on my first visit to Brick Bay, probably around 10 years ago now, um, coming across some of your Mahoe leaves there, and they were absolutely, well, they, they are absolutely captivating. Um, at first, when you come across them, especially in the native bush, there's a sense of delight, I suppose, um, but also intrigue in that that you know they're obviously visually stunning but it's almost impossible at first glance to to grasp how they were made um can you talk a little about them and the process that goes into constructing them right. look with, with the mahoe leaves i've just i just take a um you know they're about the size of this they're one of the few native leaves that that disintegrate but when they when they deteriorate or um you're left with the filigree, you're left with all the veins of the leaf, so that you get this beautiful, beautiful lace-like pattern. And I picked up some and put them in a box for about a year, and then I refound the box, and I thought, oh, I could use these. So I, I got a roller, just a little, for lino cutting, and some black ink, and I rolled them black and photocopied them so they stood out. Then I ended up blowing, getting them blown up on photocopying um, equipment to up to 2.4 metres long. Um, and about 800 millimetres wide for some of them because that was the width, the, the biggest I could put through my roller machine for corrugating. So I'd blow them up and, and by screen printing, so four big silk screens to get the actual image, and then I'd plasma cut by hand, go around and spend a lot of time cutting out all the little negative spaces which would take hours and hours and hours and then we'd, I'd get an angle grinder and sander and clean up the surface, I'd come back and I'd put an etch onto it, which would eat into the metal and then give it a couple of coats of white. And then I'd bring my silk screens back in because they'd all, I'd already done the registration originally when I'd printed them to get the pattern. So the screens naturally came back over this, this um, white, abstracty sort of printed metal, which was the shape of a leaf. And then I'd actually screen print color back on and it would actually redefine all those fine fine lines so quite beautiful and delicate and then from the flat flatness I'd cover them with bubble wrap to protect them and I'd run them through my roll former machine and corrugate them and then I'd curve them for a bit of extra strength um, maybe twist them a bit on the machine and so they had a sort of a natural feel to them and then they would go up to Brick Bay. I guess it's easy to see the delight people get from your work, but what do you get from your practice? What, what I, it's getting harder and harder for me. I really enjoy and get satisfaction out of doing, working in a way or doing something I've never done before, which I think a lot of artists, that's the same with a lot of artists. You know, we're always experimenting and looking. I've done so many different things with the material. I've woven it, I've put photographs onto it, I've stacked it. Um, you know, I cut holes in it, turn it into lace, curved it, twisted it, built with it, gone back and become a roofer and actually printed it and put it onto people's rooftops. So I've tried all these different ways and it's, it's getting harder and I've made moulds and baked bread with it and cast it in lead, bronze, um, aluminium. 
and uh, made jellies and cakes with it. So I've, you know, I've, I've tried using it and I see things, I think, oh, I could use it in that way. So I'm always looking, but it's getting less and less ways. Now I'm having to really use my imagination, so I'm hoping now some really exciting things happen. A new work that you've just finished installing on the Sculpture Trail is your mesh house. Uh, and in many ways, it's in stark contrast to the leaves, uh, which blend into the native bush, whereas the house is almost an, ex- uh, an explosion of colour and form and is really quite playful. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this work? Well, the, the, mesh, the mesh house up at Brick Bay, I wanted to make, you know, I'd, I'd played a lot with meshes and I had made other structures, you know, um, for sculpture on the Gulf where I'd use meshes and had them, actually a lot of them custom made um, with a company in Auckland. But I also cut the patterns myself as well. So here in the studio. But I wanted to make something that could interact with people, people could interact and walk inside it and walk around it and touch it and something on a grander scale that fitted into the environment. Um, It's on a gentle slope there, so I've had to build around it and build it on a bit of an angle. It was a a labour of love in that it took a lot longer than was expected because when you go, you know, when you're working in your studio, you can got your material, everything nearby, you can just do it. But when you go away somewhere else, you've got to take everything with you and everything takes four times longer. And I always underestimate um, with these things. So anyway, it's, it's pretty well there. Very happy with it. I like the way it just sits in the environment. Um, the previous two that I'd made structures along those lines, uh, this one is different because I, I wanted to see what it was like if it was predominantly one colour rather than multiple colour. So hence it's predominantly red. Um, and that was just an arbitrary choice of I just thought of colours, you know, and, and uh, I mean perhaps I've seen a lot of red sculptures which I've really enjoyed. So uh, in fact one particular one was by Gregor down in Wellington many years ago for a festival called Arch, Archie, it was an archway which he made, which was all painted red. So I was sort of inspired by that to a point, the colour, something which stood out but fitted in there at the same time. What I like about the meshes is because I've used different patterns and different sized holes, so you get a bit of that Miro or Miro effect where you get the pattern occurring with la- overlapping layers, and I like being inside or through it, where you're looking through and you're getting these densities where you've got more layers um, build up of layers and levels is quite different if you're just looking through one sheet. So, yeah, I, d- I just love the transparency of it. I like being able to walk inside it. I like the fact that can, people can walk inside it. And I've been to many, you know, sculpture events around the world um, which are very people orientated with people walking into them, onto them. Um, and I want to, to sort of do something like that. So those are two examples of your work currently on the trail. Um, And and people often associate art and sculpture with galleries and urban environments. So seeing your work and works by other Kiwi artists in a natural environment is quite a unique experience. What's your thoughts on the trail? Look, I I think Brick Bay Sculpture Walk is a very, very successful venue you know it's a it's a great and so many people know about it and talk about it and go there of course they'd go there also for the cafe the restaurant um there's there's so many people doing different things there's so many artists out there making things and doing things and differently and different materials that 
in a place like Brick Bay, they're all brought together into this wonderful environment that uh, people can experience each individual work as they walk along. You know, you've got your sound, you've got oh, you've got so many different things there that it encompasses a whole range of what's happening in New Zealand today. So visitors, visitors will get a good, you know, they get a good sense of or a taste, a taste of New Zealand sculpture at Brick Bay. Um, I, you know, I love coming across things which are a bit hidden as well. Um, I, you know, I particularly have always enjoyed Jim Wheeler's works, um, where sometimes you don't even see them when you go, you know, they're hidden away, they become so much a part of the environment. I like that, I like that little, um, that play with what's real and what's not, when you come across it. The environment there, you know, you've got things on the water, so they're built quite differently to things that you're going to have on the land. Um, you know, things that are floating are generally moving. Uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a great variety of stuff all brought together into this wonderful environment. And it's quite varied, even though we just think of it as a lot of bush, there's some quite varied sites there as well when you get up high onto, off the walkway, there's that lovely area more towards the vineyard where it's more open. You've got stuff in the dense bush which again has a different, a different feeling, a different atmosphere about it. I like walking through because this place, even, you know, I must have been there 20, 30, 40 times, but I still suddenly realised last time I was there, I said, hey, I can see the walkway. And you're actually quite close to coming in the other direction, yet when you're doing it, you feel that you're, you know, a long way away from the other part of the walkway. But there's one place where it gets within several metres, but I never even realised how close it got. Um, you know, so you're always finding new things. So whilst we're on the subject of environments, let's talk about um, the building we're sitting in now, your studio workshop. Um, it's, a, it's an absolute feast for the eyes, um, but does it, does it function well for your practice? Oh, this, this building has been, you know, it's ideal for a sculptor, you know, just the sheer size of it. The one problem is with the material, you know, outside and where I do a lot of the physical, the cutting and stuff, I have a library of sheets of iron, like a lithographer would have a library of stones, I have a library of sheets and it, they're all mixed up at the moment because I used to have them in colours and different grades so I could pick and choose as I work because I'm still very much a painter at heart, I'm just using other people's colour, you know, weathered colour, other people have painted their roof or their fences and I'm coming along and using it like a collage. Um, and reusing it and sometimes adding some paint myself. So, you know, my concerns are still very painterly, texture, weatheredness, surfaces. And um, I think that reflects around the studio itself. It's, there's, there's, there's a huge variety of stuff here. I do have problems getting rid of a lot of my offcuts because I can visualise things that I can use them for. And of course, once you've cut it and it doesn't have a flat surface or a, a straight surface to sit on, it's impossible to stand it up, so I get a lot of vertical piles, which become a problem. Um, and I have these massive, I've, you know, I can sometimes get rid of two tons of corrugated iron. Now that's an awful lot of corrugated iron over a week when I have these massive cleanups, um, just getting rid of offcuts. And you know, I load them all on the truck, and when I get to the recycling, I'll bring probably a third of it back because I'm still undecided. <laughs> so, so you're a, you're a borderline hoarder. I don't, I don't see myself as a hoarder, but then that probably means I am a hoarder. Um, what, I've, what I've tried to do, in amongst everything here, there's a lot, I have a lot of equipment, and originally I tried to set up the studio like a plumber's workshop. 
I like to be able to work immediately and have everything on hand, so I'm not having to go and borrow stuff. If I, I if I'm in the in the, you know, I want to work fast and do it spontaneously. You know, spontaneously. I want to have folders and rollers and welders and spot welders and presses for moulding things, and I want to have it all at my fingertips. And that's what I have here, so I can I can um, create things in a variety of things. Um, without having to walk out the door. And having the space is, is wonderful. So I suppose in closing, why is art important? What, what does it mean for you? Look, art, art for me, it's my life. It's like part of my soul. It's, it's, it's all I've ever done. I've, I've, I haven't done any, anything else now for probably 35 years. It's, it's, I wake up every day and I make art. Um, I don't dream about it. It's like a, it's, it's almost like a job. I walk into the studio, spend the day making art, and in the evenings I carry on painting and doing watercolours um, for commissions. Um, it's just very much a part of me, and I can't see me doing anything else. It's sort of so built in to my psyche. I love looking at art. I love, you know, even at Brick Bay and seeing what other people do. So I love seeing what other people do. And talking to them, artists are lovely. I love artists. I just find artists are really interesting, some of the most interesting people. Most of my friends are artists. It's the world that I live in. Um, yeah. Maybe I don't know too much about other things, but uh, art is certainly, um, it, it keeps me going. I'd like to thank Jeff Thompson for taking time to talk with us today and if you would like to learn more about his work or visit the Sculpture Trail at Brick Bay visit the website at brickbaysculpture.co.nz